Okay, Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19 is our text. It says here, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest or a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So there is our admonition that says, therefore, since, therefore, brethren. In, in one way, this verse 19 is summing up everything we've been studying in chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. I mean, we've had a really a long section about Christ as our high priest over the house of God, the blood atonement, the cleansed conscience, and warnings against apostasy, warnings against going back, using the Old Testament wilderness wanderers as an example of what not to do. And so given all of these chapters of teaching, now we have exhortation about what what is the implication of all this. And the implication is since Jesus did die for sins, since Jesus did pour out His blood as an atonement to avert the wrath of God, since Jesus is the high priest over the house of God, and since Jesus does sit at the right hand of the Father and ever lives to make intercession for us, and since all these things and more are true, therefore we have confidence to enter the holy place. And that isn't, it doesn't seem as remarkable as it should unless we understand the Old Testament and, and the Jewish background. Nobody had confidence to enter the holy place. Even the high priest, the once a year on the Day of Atonement, had to go with fear and trepidation. So the idea that the entire people of God Everyone, from the least to the greatest, can with confidence or boldness, the, the Greek word there is a strong word, parousia, boldness, actually enter? That's amazement, yes. Yes, as a matter of fact, later in Hebrews 10, that's exactly the point. It's from verses 19 through 25, you have the, the legal ground of our holiness, the, the blood atonement that cleanses from sin once for all, okay? The imputed righteousness of Christ, as, as Paul teaches in Romans. So therefore, we can enter the holy place. But look what is, at verse 26, what it says. If you want to just look ahead. 
It says, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there remains no sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. So this idea that positionally we are holy, therefore we may enter with boldness, doesn't give comfort to willful sinners. Yeah, because this inner holiness that's caused by justification by faith actually has an effect. Because it says in verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So God does actually literally change lives. And if there is no changed life but this continual willful sinning, uh, then it goes on and says, we're talking about the blood of atonement. Look at verse 29. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which you have sanctified and insulted the Spirit of grace? So there is no uh, antinomian doctrine to be found in the book of Hebrews. Yes. It sounds like Revelation 19.8 and it was given to her, talking about the bride of Christ, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So even though she's performing them, it was given her to, to perform them because she was holy, because it was a gift. Okay, so it's both and, both the legal and the practical aspects of the atonement. Now this is the four, this is going to, uh, as we just saw, lead into yet another warning, the fourth warning in Hebrews against apostasy. There are five warnings in the book of Hebrews about apostasy. Okay? Hebrews 10 is the fourth one. Hebrews 12 continues. I'm going to preach a little bit about Hebrews 12. I'm preaching on Genesis 25, but Hebrews 12 has commentary on Genesis 25 about Esau being profane. So that's part of the warning. Okay, let's go back here now. We have confidence. I said that word there, parousia, in the Greek means boldness. And it's a word that was used of the apostles in Acts when they were preaching with boldness, even though they were ignorant and unlearned men. But they had been with Jesus. And so it's this idea of, of, of a solid ground. The boldness of the preaching of the apostles, which uses the same Greek word, would be based on the fact that they were absolutely confident in, in the gospel. They believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. They believed that he really was indeed the Messiah. They had no doubts about the truthfulness of their message or the effectiveness of the gospel. Therefore, the result was boldness because of the solid ground of assurance. So the boldness to enter is based on nothing less than this rock-solid ground of understanding the reality of the gospel. Amen. And I think that if the gospel is not preached continually, and if people aren't taught about the blood atonement, and if they aren't taught about the holiness of God, then this type of confidence won't happen. You either end up with a false confidence that you think that God doesn't even care and He's not a holy God and we can just flippantly wander into the holy place without our sins being atoned for, which would be fatal. Amen. Or you have people who continue to grind under the guilt of sin without having any knowledge of how to find freedom. So definitely we need 
gospel preaching and teaching in order that this boldness would be the result. Now, the word to enter in the Greek literally means free access. And so by free access, we have here a contrast with the old covenant situation. There was no free access to anyone. The high priest could go in once a year after the prescribed offerings were made. Other than that, the Holy of Holies, where the mercy seat, the cherubim, and so on were there, the Ark of the Covenant, there was no free access to this. It just wasn't, it did not exist in that way. There was a veil that separated the people. So that we have free access is a unique benefit of the new covenant. Amen. And what a foolish shame it would be if we didn't avail ourselves of this. Amen. <laughs> Go to the throne of grace in our time of need. So this is a benefit to be appropriated. And what, a, what motivation for prayer there is here. And how do we have this free access? It says, by the blood of Jesus. What is the ground of our access? Blood atonement. Why was it necessary that there was a blood atonement? Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Amen. Amen. <laughs> that was the answer I was looking for. Yes. Is that arbitrary? Well, it was. De- it was. It was. It's based on God. The fact that God cannot lie, and it's based on God's justice, because all the way back. At the very beginning in the book of Genesis, when God, when, when God said to Adam and Eve, uh, if you eat of this tree, you will die. So there was one law, one revealed moral code, and that was thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the transgression of the law, the penalty was death. And so since there was a death penalty for transgressing the law, God also decreed that if there was going to be a substitute, it had to be death. And we see this all the way with God clothing Adam and Eve with the skins of the animals. We see, we see it with the sacrifice that Cain and Abel brought, what was acceptable and what wasn't. And then we see it later in the, in the command and decrees of the Mosaic Covenant about what had to happen for the sacrifice of sins. Right. Well, that principle is important. When, when we talk about blood atonement, the, the concept that life is in the blood. So when it says that Jesus' blood was shed for sins, what it means is he has laid down life. And it's talking about not just only the actual drops of blood, but it talks about, but the whole sacrifice that was made when Christ died for sins. The blood atonement covers the whole of the sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And the blood of sprinkling, which is a greater blood than the one in the Old Testament. And what is it? Some of you are new. We've been talking about this for months because we've been working through Hebrews for months. But we mentioned that the blood of sprinkling in the New Covenant sprinkles our conscience. Okay? Not just as external covering for sin, but an internal cleansing. So it says he'll cleanse our conscience. This is in somebody. Um, Dan, you want to look up Hebrews nine? I think it's twelve through fourteen. Maybe I'll backtrack a little and just get up to speed on that blood atonement. Twelve through 
14. Yes. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered into once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Amen. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Very clear. The blood atonement is mentioned in Hebrews in Hebrews 9, as we read there. Hebrews 10.19, 10.29, 10.24, 13.12, and then 13.20. So, it's an important theme, the blood atonement. Um, so, it's, it says that it cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And it's based on the idea that God's wrath against sin is a real thing. And that needs to be averted. Amen. Okay, so I have some more passages here. Um, Brian, could you look up Romans 5 and verse 2? And Denise, Romans 8.15. Keith, Ephesians 2.18. Leif, Ephesians 3.12. Skip, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Okay, I can't read my own writing, but I got it here. Um, Dennis, 1 John 4, 15 through 17. Okay, Romans 5, 2. Through him also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And let us rejoice and exult in our hope of experiencing and enjoying the glory of God. Yeah, the key phrase there is that we have access. Did you know that no man stands between us and access to God? Amen. I thought Dan might say something about the Pope. He was on TV yesterday. Well, I was thinking, and with all due respect, <laughs> uh, popes and many popes are on top of the roof doing the Stations of the Cross, and you think of the Hail Mary. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Can you see the difference between the shed blood where we come boldly before the living God? Amen. We don't need the last rites and hopes. And asking somebody who cannot pray for us to pray for us at the hour of our death when the Jesus Christ died and said it's finished. He shed his blood for us so we boldly can come in there not to go to Mary. Mary, like I said, a thousand times over would slap your face and tell you to go to Jesus Christ. My testimony is my, my soul rejoices in the Lord my Savior. So they're going to Mary at the hour of our death. No, we boldly come before the throne with the testimony, Peter said, that lies within us, that what Jesus Christ shed his blood, died, rose from the dead, John 3.16, that we can have eternal life with Jesus Christ. To my wonderful people out there that are trusting in the Pope, trusting in the last rites, trusting in Mary, would you put your faith in Jesus Christ to shed blood once and for all and boldly come before the throne and bear witness like Peter said, there's no name under heaven whereby a man must be saved but Jesus Christ. Christ, period. Not yeah. Christ plus anything else. Okay, Dan. Thank you. I knew that was there. <laughs> See, I knew that you've been thinking about that. I prayed. Well, I prayed that the Pope would put his faith in Jesus Christ. Well, I, amen. 
Okay, the spirit of adoption. God adopted us orphans into his spiritual family. Amen. Aren't you glad? Amen. Praise you. There's an old gospel song that says, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Join ears with Jesus as we travel this sod. Crazy. Isn't that a nice old song? We'll have to sing it sometime. Ephesians 2.18. I think that's you, Keith. For through him we have our access. Both, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Talks about Jew and Greek together have access to God through Jesus, the Messiah. Wow. Is there any greater message to preach than to tell people how they have access to God? You know, every world religion believes that you have to try to please God through good works, except Christianity. Amen. That says that we can't do any good works. Christ died for our sins, and we need to come by faith and on His terms. By His blood. There's no other way to come into God's presence but the blood of Jesus Christ. And... Um, We should sing about that. There's a lot of good songs about the blood atonement. And some denominations went through and took every one of them out of their hymnals. Did you know that? Yep. They took it out or changed it. When I was a a young um, lad in the 50s, I was real young in the 50s. I want you to know. But uh, (laughs) I was around, but I was very young. But we, our denomination had gone liberal and they had taken all of these songs out. Which, of course, I didn't know the difference because I didn't know they'd ever been there. All I ever heard is what we had in the 50s. And when I met the Lord in 1971 and I went to the old Pentecostal church, they were singing all these hymns. I had never heard any of them. They were singing, uh, uh, there's power in the blood and this chorus, what can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. We used to sit on Sunday night and someone would get on the piano or the organ or both and we'd sit there, church is over, and we'd sit there for hours singing these. I have fond memories of that. It was just like we didn't want to go home because we were singing these songs. They were all brand new to me. Because I never heard them in the liberal church that I grew up in. And you know what's sad today is that these same songs are going out of the evangelical church. And so the young people are going to grow up and have the same experience I did, only they're growing up in Baptist and E-Free and Missionary Alliance and Assemblies of God. And, and, and they're, they're going to end up with the same experience that I had as a Methodist. So it's kind of a sad turn of events in my opinion. Okay, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Oh yeah, Ephesians 3.12. I skipped you. Boldness. There's the word boldness again connected with the term access. Ephesians 3.12. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Okay, so there is this idea that if we sin, we have an advocate, paraclete, that means a defense attorney, one called alongside to help. This advocate is with the Father, Jesus Christ, who is the righteous. And then it says, through we have propitiation, a term that has to do with having averted God's wrath. So that God's wrath against sin is averted by this blood atonement that Christ made. So the idea is, if we sin as Christians, what do we do? 
we come on the only basis there is. Faith in Christ and the finished work. He's, he's our defense attorney. Amen. He's going to get us off. But only be God by faith through the finished work of Christ. All right. Um, 1 John 4, 15 through 17. 15 through 17. 1 John 4. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God. God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Yeah, I think the key idea is that we might have confidence in the day of judgment. That's an awesome idea. Because the day of judgment is not, a, is not something that would normally invoke a lot of confidence. <laughs> okay. Fear and trepidation would be the main uh, experience one would expect on a day of judgment. But here it says that in his love we have confidence on a day of judgment because of what Christ did for us. So there is assurance for the forgiveness of sins. All right, so there, that's verse 19. Let's go to verse 20. It says, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, verse 19, verse 20, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. So, here is a new and living way. In what way would it be said to be new? Okay, through His resurrection. New, I think, is new in contrast to the way that they had in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement, which was quite restricted. And I think the living living way probably means that it leads to life. If you take this way, where you end up is life. It's the result. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's a good point. Maybe it's the idea that he ever lives to make intercession for us. He's living and is a perpetual living Messiah who is seated at the right hand of God, who is there for us at all times. And we can come boldly to that. By the way, there's that word boldly again that we found with boldness to enter earlier. It said we might come boldly to the throne of grace. Again, it almost seems oxymoronic if you think of it in, in the Old Testament terms. You don't go boldly to even a human king's throne. Remember, Esther was afraid to go to the king? Yes. Because if you went to the king when you weren't bidden, what happened? You die. You die. The king, this earthly king who was nothing but a sinner, could sit on the throne and said, nobody comes to me unless I bid them come. And if they, if they try to come on their own, I'll, I'll, my guards will take them out and kill them. So that was the earthly king. How much more glorious is God? So how do you go boldly to God I'm, uh, at the time you decide to? Well, according to the gospel, Christ provides this new and living way that ever is always open to us. And God's a loving and gracious God, so He always is bidding us to come. There's no time where we're not bidden to come to the throne of grace. Amen. Yes. Like Stephen had boldness 
and Saul was putting him to death, and his boldness was, like Jesus said, from the cross, forgive them, they know not what to do. He was talking to the Jews and bearing witness to Christ, and he says, I see what? Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father, and they were stoning him. So there is the first martyr with boldness testifying about Jesus Christ, and they're stoning him to death, and he's not mean, he's praying, caring about the Jews. And guess who was one of the Jews out there that was stoning him to death? It was Saul. But yet he boldly bore witness to what Christ did for me. He's telling the Jews the whole history of it. And then he says, I see Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Well, we have him interceding for us. And we can boldly come before the throne, even at death, and testify like Stephen, and not have malice in our hearts, because we wouldn't wish hell on anybody, testifying of the greatness, the glory, and the love of God. Got to take care of the wrath, because I wouldn't, like I say, wish hell on anybody, because there's no coming back from hell. That's true. The primary difference, here's Lane talking about these two verses. Both verses refer to the new access, its goal, and the sacrificial death of Jesus as the ground for access to God. The primary difference between the two verses is that the subject of verse 19 is Christians, whereas the subject of verse 20 is Christ. So he is the one who is the new and living way. He inaugurated the way, or... The word inaugurated could be translated consecrated or it could be translated made available. So this, it's this consecrated, available, perpetually that way. And so as Christians, ought we not to be people of prayer? Ought we ought not to be excited about the access that God's given us Amen. to this throne? It's not a little thing. It's not a, it's not a insignificant matter. To be able to actually go to the throne of God. And this is the antidote to human religion where we're always looking for a holy man to stand between us and God. There was um, yesterday, being how I was frustrated and I didn't get to watch golf, I, I came back down to the church again did some more work, <laughs> actually. And then I went back home and, and I was going to watch the Bulls. I'm a Chicago Bulls fan. Don't hold that against me. And I turned on WGN and they had a little, before the game, and they had a little expose about these Polish Catholics from Chicago who had, who had gone on a trek to see the Pope at an earlier time. And, and so they had a, brought a camera and there was this big documentary and how they dressed up in their Polish garb and how they were just, they got in this great big, place all these other people and they were just dreaming of the possibility of getting a, a private meeting with the Pope and he noticed their Polish garb and so it worked and they got to go see the Pope and then it shows these people kissing his ring and then they were talking to these people and they were like I mean it was amazing I think what was sad about it is how much faith they have in man that there is no holy man that's any more holy than anybody else, and he's not even holy unless his sins are rushed away by the blood of Jesus. Okay? And, and whoever's sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus are saints, holy ones. Amen. Equally so. Amen. There isn't any hierarchy of people with some holy man at the top of the pyramid that if you can only kiss his ring, you're closer to God. No, if you're going to bow down to a man and kiss his ring, you are further from God. Amen. And I saw that, and isn't that a heartbreak? Sad. 
What? And I thought, man, Antichrist will have no problem diluting the world, but just because of the way people think. And so I watched that, and then the Bulls came on, and I was happier because they won. So. <laughs> A lot of love <laughs> the bulls and the pope. Was that <laughs> people bull? No, that not that good. Anyhow, uh, so that's what we're going to get in the paper for a while here. So we have a, he, he made available. So you don't need a man to stand there and let you, uh, give you access to God, or there's no holy priesthood other than the priesthood of every believer. Amen. Okay? That's a big difference and people don't understand that. Diane um, Bukowski, Leviticus 16.2, Noel, Matthew 27.51, Pat, John 6.35-39, Kathy, John 14 and verse 6, and Lois, 1 Timothy 3.16, that's 1 Timothy 3.16. And um, um, Mike, 1 Peter 3.18. And um, that's it for that verse. Matthew 27.51. Matthew 27.51. Okay, Leviticus 16.2. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So tell Aaron that if he goes in there at any time, he'll die. Amen. Now, was that free access? No. Yeah, the reason you can't go to go there is because I'm going to be there. If you go there, you'll die. You're too big of a sinner, and that's the whole human race without atonement. Amen. We come to God, we die in His presence, unless there's something that happened. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one. That was when Jesus was crucified. He said the veil of the temple was split in two, from top to bottom. Why from top to bottom? God did it. Why was it split at all? To make access. Now we can come. I can't just imagine the uh, keepers of the temple having repaired that. <laughs> I don't know what they thought. You would have thought they would all run out and got saved right on the spot. You know, uh, well, yeah, after everything that happened in the Sanhedrin and the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin and then with the earthquake and then the... T- you, isn't it amazing how hard-hearted people... You know, I guess it is, and we are hard-hearted. It's like you'd think the obvious thing to do would be for everybody to repent and believe the gospel right on the spot. Okay, John six thirty-five to 39. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Amen. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. 
All whom the Father's given, I lose nothing and raise it up on the last day. So if we do indeed come to Christ, we are assured of the resurrection unto eternal life. Based on the the promise of Jesus and the promise of the Father. John 14 and verse 6, Kathy. Okay, it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. 1 John 3.16. 1 Timothy 3.16. Wow. What most scholars believe that was an early Christian confession that was repeated amongst the Christians. So that that was a, it's kind of a formula they repeated over it at their church services. But it's interesting, believed on in the world, received, what did it all say about him? He was, it sort of recounted what all God did through Christ. <laughs> Preaching to the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in the glory. Then that's called the mystery of godliness. And I was just thinking about that. Why would godliness be considered a mystery? Well, mystery, as it's used in the New Testament, is something that we would not possibly have known had God not chosen to reveal it. Amen. See, a mystery in the Bible isn't something that nobody knows, but some clever people figure it out. You know, because they're, they're sleuths. Is that the right term? A sleuth? What's a sleuth? Yeah, that would be like Sherlock Holmes, right? Yes. So Sherlock Holmes figures out the mystery. Well, that's not how the New Testament mystery is. Nobody would figure it out unless God determined to reveal it. So the mystery of godliness is that God was in Christ reconciling sinners to himself. We know that because God revealed it through the personal work of Christ and in the Bible. Okay, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ died for the sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to to God. So his point is to bring us to God. Amen. Okay. Oh, uh, Scott, could you do one, two, one John, or excuse me, two John, one, seven. Two John, one, seven. Okay, there's deceivers that have gone out in the world that are antichrists. And what do they, what, what's their characteristic? They do not acknowledge Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So the doctrine of Christ is absolutely central to to discernment. And it is the key to discernment. We did a conference on this in um, our first Faith at Risk conference. I gave a session on this. The key to discernment is the doctrine of Christ. And the basic bottom line for discernment is whether Christ is clearly confessed and preached. And and a few have a private belief in Christ, and you don't clearly confess Him publicly, then that shows that you're a deceiver, according to the Scripture, and that you shouldn't be listened to. And if you want any further evidence of that, just read the book of Acts. Every single time any of the apostles or any preachers valid preachers, in the book of Acts, every single time they had a hearing with anybody, what did they do? They confessed the person and work of Christ. 100% of the time. 
And that's how you know there's a work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will always cause us to do that. And anyone who will stand up in front of a football field full of 100,000 people who claims to be a preacher of the gospel and doesn't confess the person and work of Christ, that one is a deceiver. And they're not motivated by the Holy Spirit because they don't care for the souls of these people. Yeah. Right. Exactly. The early confession of the church, the, the the confession of Peter on Pentecost, the preaching of Stephen, the preaching of Paul, the preaching of the gospel as it was clear was throughout the New Testament. And I've claimed in uh, in a number of CIC articles that. That is how you discern. And what is people are doing wrong is that they think somebody's private confession is all they need. In other words, if somebody says privately, well, yeah, I believe in the Christian gospel, but when they're on TV preaching to the masses, they don't ever say anything about it. Their confession is what they say publicly, not what they say claim to believe privately. Yes. Like the Pope, when he went to the West Wall, lest he offend any of the Jews, he wouldn't mention Christ. Well, I guarantee you, I'd like to be at the front of that West Wall and offend every Jew on the face of the earth, telling them that salvation is of the Jews and Jesus Christ is Savior. What an opportunity. But the whole thing is, don't offend anybody. Well, the gospel is offensive. When you're at that West Wall, what a time to tell the Jews about their Messiah. Yeah. Did you remember? I probably told you Jan Markell's story about there was a big... Jewish outreach thing going on at this big church and that all of the people there were told by the leadership of the church they're not to mention Jesus Christ to any Jewish people. And Jan found out about it and went to the leadership and she said to them, I'm glad somebody was willing to offend my father and tell them about Jesus Christ. He was so offended, he eventually got saved. He was a Jew. And therefore, I ended up hearing the gospel. And how dare you refuse to preach the gospel to the Jews? Amen. And Jan was so forceful about it, they changed her policy. So God bless her. They were embarrassed at their policy, yes. I totally agree. And the, and the Bible claims that the gospel is an expression of the love of God. And if we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though the world doesn't want to hear that there's only one way to God, there's nothing more loving but proclaiming the way to God truly. Amen. It's the greatest act of love that you could do is tell somebody the truth. If somebody's on a train that's going to, and the, and the bridge is out up ahead and the train's going to go into the river, wouldn't it be loving to warn them? Amen. Okay. Well, they don't. They don't want me to interrupt their trip. They're enjoying oh. it so much. Well, <laughs> no. Who needs serenity when you're on the train to going off the end of the track? You want to hear the fact that the bridge is out. All right. So the, that's the bottom line. I'll be preaching a little bit about that this morning. Uh, I'll be referencing Peter at the day of Pentecost and the message that he preached that where he said, save yourself from this perverse generation. Why? Because judgment's coming. Save yourself. I mean... He's calling, you're, you're, you're a perverse generation. 
Yeah, this is your their generation that's perverse. Yeah, exactly. All right, one more verse here, at least. John 10, 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, which is just a phrase that goes on to say, let us draw near. But let's unpack this idea of, a, of the house of God. What is the house of God? The household of faith. Isn't it St. Peter's Basilica? <laughs> Sorry, Dan. I, I didn't want to put a dime in you here. <laughs> no, it's not St. Peter's Basilica. The house of God is people. It's the household of God. It says earlier in Hebrews, well, no, I don't want to say that. I'm going to take away somebody's cross reference here. I was going to say it myself. But it's a household of God. It's the people. Buildings are neither here nor there. A building is a facility. What does a facility do? It facilitates. <laughs> okay? So a facility, in as much as it facilitates a gathering for the house, true house of God, the people, and in as much as it facilitates the preaching of the gospel and the work of the ministry, then that building is a useful thing for a congregation. But the building is never a holy place, nor is it the house of God. Amen. Amen. The house of God could meet in a cow pasture and still be the house of God. Amen. Praise the Lord. <laughs> All right. Yes. Some physical, yeah, yeah. It's not built by God's by man's hands, right? And the priest, by the way, here is the same analogy, Mike. We have a great priest over the house of God. It's not some person in a physical building doing religious activities. It's the high priest who resides in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Right. Exactly. So the house of God would be the people. Okay, Sherry, two, what's that? Pass? Okay, that's always fair. Um, uh, Norma, 2 Corinthians 6, 16 and 17. And Judith, if, oh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. Judith, Ephesians 2, Verses 19 to 22, and Daniel 1 Timothy 3:15, 1 Timothy 3:15, and then Artists Hebrews 3, 3 through 6, Hebrews 3, 3 through 6. Okay, um, Norma, as soon as you're ready to go, 2 Corinthians 6:16 6, and 17. Okay, there it says we are the temple of God, the people, right? God indwells His people and they are the, the dwelling place of God, not a physical building. Ephesians 2, 19-22. Okay. 
There's the household of faith. Again, it's the people of God who are bought with the blood of Christ, not an actual literal building. Okay? 1 Timothy 3. You know, by the way, if, if this had truth had been known throughout church history, can you imagine all the money would be saved on gold plating? And um, In other words, gazillions. <laughs> I mean, how, many, how much money has been spent trying to make buildings fitting dwelling places for God? Whereas, a matter of fact, they're just buildings. Yes. Or like the Crystal Cathedral, isn't that considered the most expensive per square foot piece of architecture ever built? That's, I've heard that before. I mean, this mess not a Catholic thing either because I came from a charismatic background where they believe that God came down and told them that this 17 acres is holy ground. So they bought this holy ground and they're going to build this this holy place on it and do holy things in this holy ground. And when you believe that this dirt's more holy than that dirt, it uh, colors your decision-making. Very much so. And, and, and there is no such thing as a holy ground any, that's more holy than some other ground somewhere. Either all holy or not holy, but there's nothing holy or not holy. <laughs> The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? Amen. Okay, so you can't go on a journey around the earth and get closer to God by showing up in some locale. I, I had a debate with a guy who was trying to claim he was promoting this Pensacola revival. And I said, well, why do you have to fly in an airplane to go somewhere to meet God? Well, because, this, you know what he said? Well, this is a theophany. In other words, this would, that God showed up at Pensacola in some way that God didn't show up in Minneapolis. And it would be like Moses at the burning bush or the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, only now it's going on in Pensacola, so you actually got to go there or you're not going to see God, at least not in that, in that regard. Is that a New Testament concept, that there's some theophany somewhere in the world that you have to go to this location to see? No. It's a denial of Jesus Christ in the flesh because Jesus Christ bodily is sitting in heaven. If he came yeah. down, he would be a bodily Jesus, and that would be the second coming. Yeah, so there won't be one place where you can... That's a good point. Until Jesus is reigning in Jerusalem from the throne of David, there won't be some place where you can go actually see Jesus compared to any other place because he's accessed by faith. Well, but you, yeah, that then I was at the Virgin Mary on a piece of toast. Yeah, well, anyhow, well, I saw that in the paper. Didn't they sell it on eBay? I don't know. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, in Matthew 24. Yeah, if he says he's there, here's the other place, don't believe them. And, but this guy that I was debating was absolutely sincere. He really believed you had to go to Pensacola if you want to get closer to God. And you couldn't dissuade him. And it just shows the teaching that people are getting in the churches isn't clear enough. We have, maybe people never studied the book of Hebrews. But we need clear teaching or we're just as likely to believe these things as anybody else. Okay, we had Ephesians 2, 19. To, did we do that one yet? No, Ephesians 2, 19 and 22.
Okay, that's the next one. All right, First Timothy three fifteen. I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Okay, there it talks about the household of God. Now the King James says the house of God, but it doesn't mean a building. Hebrews three three through six. Okay, whose house we are. Now that passage talks about Moses' house, which was the old covenant, and Jesus' house, which is the church in the new covenant. Alright? And we are, so Jesus is faithful over his house, which is the church, and so it's the household of God and not a physical building. Amen. Amen. And you know, if there's no holy objects, you can't sell them on eBay. People would like to buy holiness and take it home in their pocket. But it only comes through the, the gospel. So uh, we have a time of fellowship, and we'll see you upstairs in 1030.